My brother-in-law went home and Googled Zoloft and suicide, and we were shocked. There were hearings in 1991 when it was just Prozac on the market. I put the gun to my head, nearly committing suicide in front of her. With the exact same issue. After being happily married for almost 10 years, Kim Wetzak's husband shockingly committed suicide shortly after he was prescribed an antidepressant off-label for insomnia. I intuitively, at the deepest part of me, knew there was no way that Woody would take his own life. For almost 20 years now, Witsack has been an advocate for pharmaceutical drug safety and reform, most recently taking on the fight for transparency and accountability surrounding COVID-19 vaccines. There are more injuries and deaths that have been reported with this vaccine alone than any of the other ones. Right there, that should be a signal. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Kim Witsack, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Kim, you've been a drug safety advocate now for almost 20 years. Um, and I absolutely want to figure out how you got to be doing this very, very interesting work. Before we go there, I want to read a headline uh, from the Epoch Times from yesterday and get your commentary. Um, Hundreds of thousands of Americans sought medical care after COVID-19 vaccination, CDC data says. Um, And I'll read a quote from Aaron Siri, the lawyer on the case representing the Informed Consent Action Network. It took numerous legal demands, appeals, and two lawsuits and over a year, but the CDC finally capitulated and agreed to a court order requiring them to do what they should have done from day one, release the vSafe data to the public. So tell me about what vSafe data is. This is exactly in your wheelhouse. Yeah. And and what this is all about. So, well, first of all, um, I'm so happy that we were able to finally get this data because this data actually should have been out and made public many, many months ago. So vSafe was actually, it was going to capture any kind of safety side effects that a person had at the time they actually got vaccinated. So there were little cards that they gave the individuals that were getting the shot. If they were experiencing any side effects, they could actually write in and it would go to the CDC. So to me, you know, when you have a rushed um, to market vaccine, this was a really Um, exciting thing for me to see that there was maybe an opportunity to capture safety in real time as it was happening. But as we know, it didn't exactly um, get disclosed to the public until months and over a year later. So it's like the very purpose of this system was kind of subverted from within. Like what what happened? Yeah, that would be a good question for the FDA and the CDC. I would like to know why. What were they going to do with the data? Imagine if Aaron Siri had not sued to get this data. Would we ever get this? Would we, the public ever know what was being reported in real time when the vaccine program originally ro- rolled out back in early, what was it, late 2020, early 2021? And there were 800,000 reports, or almost 800,000 reports, from what I understand. That seems like a lot. It is a lot because, you know, that is people who took their time to actually put in their information because they wanted it to, in some ways, you know, they wanted it to be used for other people going forward, right? So 800,000, you know, is a lot, but I can see the other side saying, but not compared to the millions and millions of people who've taken it. 
But we always have to remember any of these safety kind of systems, whether it's um, this V-Safe or VAERS or the FDA MedWatch, that a small percent of people actually take the time to report. So you always wonder, is it is this just the iceberg and there's a lot more underneath um, who did not take the time to actually report. You actually have a difficult story of how you actually got into this. This was not your wheelhouse by any manner, shape, or form in the past. Yeah, I like to call myself the accidental advocate because I would never have chosen this as my advocacy work. So I was married. I had, um, to my husband, Woody, almost 10 years. We were just starting to think about having kids. And um, uh, August 6, 2003, I got a call from my dad who told me, um, Woody's dead. I'm like, what? Woody's dead? And they're like, he's hanging. I'm like, hanging? Like, the whole thing made no sense. And Woody wasn't depressed. Woody had no history of depression or any other mental illness. He had just started his dream job with a startup company and was having trouble sleeping. So five weeks earlier, he went to his doctor. The doctor you know, told him he wasn't sleeping, and he sent him home with um, a prescription of Zoloft, which is an antidepressant, and told him it would take the edge off and help him sleep. And you know, Woody did what most people did, trust. Woody was an athlete. He was kind of Humpty Dumpty. You know, he got hurt, you know, they fixed him, you know, broke his leg, they fixed him. So like he trusted his doctor. And truthfully, there's no reason why at that time we wouldn't have trusted. So that night when I got that call, I was out of town and I remember the coroner asked me a question. He asked if Woody was taking any medication. And, and I said, yeah, and I go, I, think, I didn't even really know what it was, but she goes, oh, there's a bottle of Zoloft sitting on the kitchen counter. And I said, yes, that's it. She goes, we're going to take it with us. It might have something to do with his death. So that was his only medication he was on. Then, ironically, uh, the front page of our newspaper had an article that said the UK finds a link between antidepressants and suicide in teens that exact same day. So Woody did not leave a message, or there was no note. Um, I was trying to get, figure out how to get home. I was out of town when this happened. My brother-in-law went home and Googled Zoloft and suicide, and we were shocked. There were hearings in 1991 um, when it was just Prozac on the market with the exact same issue. There were advisory committee meetings talking about the link between uh, suicide and violence. And we had no idea. Truthfully, we never questioned the drug. Uh, why would we? You know, it was given to him by his doctor. It was sold and advertised safe and effective. And the FDA, it was FDA approved. And at that moment, if I intuitively, at the deepest part of me, knew there was no way that Woody, this guy who loved life, would take his own life. So that became kind of this trying to uh, research and figure out like w what happened. And so that really was the start of it. And then from there, we, um, I like to call it the battle for Woody. Uh, it took, in, took shape in many forms. Uh, the, we did a lot of media, told Woody's story. We had a lawsuit against um, Pfizer, a wrongful death failure to warn. 
I came out to D.C. and met with a lot of members of Congress and the FDA. And eventually there were FDA hearings to get black box suicide warnings put on, as well as congressional hearings that wanted to know what the drug companies knew um, about the link between suicide and antidepressants. Okay, you said one thing that might not be obvious to everyone. That's black box warnings. What is that? Black box um, warnings are the most serious of uh, an FDA warning. That means that there could be deaths associated with it, but it is the most stringent warning. If you ever look at the inserts that come with, um, in your prescriptions, it is literally in a black box on the top of your prescription, uh, and it, it alerts you and should alert your provider that there is a serious risk with this medication so that you can be informed and know. Uh, at the time of Woody's death, there was no warning. That didn't exist. Um, and it also, a black box warning also um, affects like how you advertise um, the product. And if you also look at like print ads or if you look at um, any of the social media ads, again, it's in a black box. And that, and that is gonna basically tell the user, presumably, that they should seriously think about taking this. Is it worth it? Is that, that's the idea? Well, for me, it should be something that you actually disclose and tell pers a person like that this has a serious adverse um, event or a potential for it so that you can actually have a conversation with your doctor, with the pharmacist, with your loved one. You know, I look back and go, Woody went in because he couldn't sleep. Should that have been really what he should have been given? Mm -hmm. No. And if he would have actually would have been told, like, it's an antidepressant. If you start feeling a certain way, we could have maybe done something. So I remember one situation with Woody. When he came home, I was, I was out of town um, for my job, and I came and I was excited to see him. And, and uh, he comes walking through our back door. He had a blue dress shirt on, on you know, white T-shirt, completely sweat through dropped to the floor with his hands like a, uh, around his head like a vice. He's like, Kim, you got to help me. I don't know what's happening to me. Let's take my head outside my body looking in. He's just rocking back and forth, bawling. We had no idea what was going on. We called the doctor, and the doctor said, you have to give it four to six weeks to kick in. I mean, he was having an adverse, which it turned out to be one of the side effects um, that the company kept from the public and the doctors. But that is the importance of warnings, it's the importance of having conversations, um, but it starts from the top. The company knows, the FDA knows, CDC in this case, then it goes to the doctor. But if we're the last to find out, but we're the ones that live with, with this decision from keeping it from us. So it sounds like you, know, you played an important role in at least getting these sorts of warnings being more publicized and available. Give me a picture of how you view uh, the health industry uh, prior to COVID. How, how do you see it functioning? Well, it's funny. When I look at what we initially got done with the antidepressants, right? I thought, oh, good. I did my job. Like, I'm going back to my old life because I thought it was just an isolated incident with just the antidepressants. But what I quickly realized, it's actually a larger systemic problem with our whole drug safety system. And 
then I started finding the ties. You know, it's almost, I, I like to call it a spider web, where you start seeing how the industry is really kind of, it's a business. And I think that is um, a premise that I start from. I also look at our patients as um, customers. My patient safety groups aren't always happy when I say that. They're like, no, but we're patients. I'm like, we are, but the industry needs patients to do the business. So it is a big business that is full um, of conflicts of interest. It's set up to sell product. And even the approval process and um, the, at the FDA, there's so much focus on getting things to market and not so much after and looking at the harms of medication. And so what, what did you see when essentially COVID uh, is coming onto the scene? There's reporting on it. It looks like it's going to be very bad. This is what well, we are saying. What are you seeing when, when all this starts happening? So, of course, I was afraid, you know, nervous too. Like, what, we don't know what this is. It was always focusing on death, death, fear, death, fear. And like, you know, I'm in marketing and advertising. It's my profession. So fear sells hope sells. And so I saw a lot of that and, and it creates panic, right? Then there's a new vaccine that was going to be rushed through um, Operation Warp Speed. And it was going to be on the market in, by the end of the year. Um, vaccines were never my advocacy focus. But the fact that something was rushed to market and was going to be available and with short amount of clinical trials. All drugs have risks, but not this one. It was told that it was completely safe and effective um, and started seeing celebrities and social media influencers all telling us that we had to get it. And, we, and I started to see that the media, that the media that I worked with all the time quickly became um, part of the PR firm, you know, the extended PR department of the drug industry to help sell and get these into every arm. So the drug industry and the government, I guess, because mm -hmm. this was a very, it was a strong government yeah, push as well. Yeah, very much, right. Right. So let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah. So, you know, there's all these people that you've been working with over the last 20 years to talk about these issues, for example, of... Um, you know, psychiatric drugs and safety related to psychiatric drugs. But so what happened to these journalists that have been helping you expose this? You know, I've worked for years with a lot of mainstream journalists, like from around the world, from, you know, ABC, CBS, CNN, BBC, like they were my friends and as well as the, the fortunes and the newspapers. You know, when I go back to the initial um, trials that they used to get authorization, the fact that it was only a couple months worth of data, right? And then we lost the placebo control group. Mm. You know, the companies and the government said it was for ethical reasons. You know, we're in a pandemic, so we can't, we got to let the people in the placebo group get it. But my feeling is that is what a clinical trial is. So if you sign up for a clinical trial, you as, you know, if I signed up for one, that is part of my job. You know, I, I may get it, I may not get it. You know, that's part of the risk of being in a trial. But when you took away the placebo group, we now have lost 
a huge part of the ability to look at efficacy and safety. So I would have loved to have seen that being reported on, right? Instead, we had, I remember right after the December 2020, we had the Times it, like reporting 100% effective, 99% effective. And so that tells a very different picture than the idea that, well, but we don't know about the safety. That is where people get their news. And truthfully, I, a lot of doctors also, you know, they're, they're people too, and that's where they're hearing their news. Or, and so if you're only getting the one side that's coming from pharma and the government, you're not getting the full story. Well, I want to briefly talk about this vSafe data. Right from the beginning, um, the CDC is collecting this vSafe data, but there's these journalists that you're speaking with, that you've been speaking with all these years. One would think that if this data isn't coming out, you might want to investigate that and, and find out. Even given the number of people that were, that were vaccinated, 800,000 is still a pretty large mm -hmm. number of adverse effects reported, right? So I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to understand, given this scenario, uh, with this V-safe data now coming out, what can and should be done in your mind with this? Well, we should have been pushing the media, like what is the safety? You know, now we're putting this in so many arms, we're mandating, what does it look like? But you know what, they would just keep going to the same, you know, talking heads at CDC, the FDA, and we'd be like, nope, we have no safety signals, right? If you were in a a true journalist, you should have been pushing that question a little bit more and asking where is safety or when there's other reports and other studies and other experts that are coming out that maybe have a different view of what's happening or they're seeing data coming out of Israel or data coming out of the UK. Why aren't you curious to go find out what they're finding, what they're seeing? I'm really thankful for Epoch, um, Epoch Times because they are doing investigative journalism, going in and asking the tough questions. And it's the alternative media that's doing it, right? Uh, but the average person doesn't know. So if you say, hey, did you know that the um, Pfizer um, or the FDA is not going to release Pfizer's data for 75 years? They look at you like you're crazy conspiracy theorists. I'm like, no, it was because of lawsuits, again, by Aaron Siri, that was able to get that data made public, right? And so they started releasing the safety data. Same thing with the, um, the vSafe out of the CDC. But along the way, they kept telling us it was safe. Nope, we just see no signals. And so I think when you don't have that piece of the puzzle, when you're having just everyday conversations with your friends or people in the community, that isn't there, so it's creating divide. Mm. And I think that division... Just, just to be clear, you mean like, you know, some people are, uh, you know, skeptical of the drug or just simply don't like taking drugs or whatever, but the, the rest of the population has this perception this is something perfectly safe and in fact, you know, valuable for the community, so what's your problem? Yeah. Right? And I think that was part of what's happened too in the last couple of years. It's every, we're like becoming divisive um, people. You know, we should be having conversations. 
But when the, everybody's telling you that do your duty, you're going to save grandma, this is about somebody else, this is not about you, and yet you know that there's all this other story that's not being told, you start having people that don't, you know, disagree, and, and people have lost friendships, families have divided up over this. Um, and just the fact of what is science now too, right? Even science can't even be debated. So some people like the folks at the Academy for Scientific Freedom, for example, would say that, well, there is, science is always just one thing and it's this, you know, kind of, I guess, search for the empirical truth, right? Empirical reality um, through various tests and hypotheses and so forth. And then there's also scientism which is, you know, edict and the science is settled and, and this sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here what they would say, but um, so, it's, so it's not really that science that's divided. It's more like there's some kind of, uh, you know, establishment view that may or may not be science-based and then there's actual science. Mm -hmm. That was another observation I had is the idea of questioning, right? And there was no debate. It was like, this is the science. And how can it be settled when it was just such a new and we're still in the process and we're still learning and you're asking for the public's input by using the v-safe or we've got the vares like how is it settled and especially when there's you know all of these reports and, and studies coming in from other parts of the world right you would think they'd be curious about well what are you learning we should have a debate and i saw that with um antidepressants where the same thing, because remember it was the front page of the, um, where it said the UK found link between antidepressants and suicide. There was somebody over there um, that had all this information. And when the FDA hearings were happening, he should have been one of the invited presentations, I would think, right? Instead, he was given three minutes like I was given three minutes to tell our story. And, and then now, fast forward, um, sitting on a F one of the FDA advisory committees, there was a drug that we were reviewing. It got pulled off of the, um, out of the UK, but it, they wanted to get it put on the market in the US. So I remember asking the question, are we gonna hear from why the, the UK pulled the drug? Because we're trying to approve it? Like to me, it's that whole idea is this, um, that tension, and that is what science should be. Like we should want to learn and ask and tease it out to see, especially when you have something novel like this, a novel platform, a novel delivery mechanism, we should want to see and learn from, and ask questions and have other scientists, not just the one that's coming out of, you know, Fauci and the NIH and, and his camp of science. So what's been coming out with this disclosure of the V-Safe system, of the Pfizer disclosures is, and frankly, you know, a lot of grassroots work that's been doing is that there just, there are a lot of vaccine harms associated with these genetic vaccines. Well, we gotta, we gotta go back and remember that these companies were given complete legal immunity. So they, you know, with this fast track product, even if it didn't work or caused some harms, they're completely um, immune from being liable for any harms or future harms down the road. So 
that was, you know, that right there should be a flag for people. You know, I've met a lot of vax injured now um, who are trying to get, be heard, get their stories told. Um, but what they're doing is things are being quickly censored. So these people aren't even being acknowledged. And they were doing what the government asked. Um, you know, do, they were doing their part. And now that they're injured, they're like an, an uncomfortable truth, an inconvenient truth. Let's not acknowledge them. And they have no recourse for harms. Like they can't sue. You know, I was able to take on um, Pfizer, right? They can't, there is no avenue. And there is a special, um, the vaccine compensation program, right? The countermeasure program. There are all these people that have applied for it. Not, there's been no distribution of, of any funds. And so, again, the government's going to be paying for any harms. First, there has to be acknowledgement of harms. But there's been an intentional um, silencing and um, we need acknowledgement for the, the vaccine injured. There's clearly a sizable number of them just in this cataloged in this V-safe data and the CDC's own database. So isn't that an acknowledgement? Sure, the data might be there, but we need the CDC, the FDA to come out and acknowledge it, that it exists. The people who approve your products at the FDA are the same people that review safety. Hmm. So it's the same people. And for a long time, we've been advocating they should be completely separate departments. The people who approve the drugs are not the same people who should be looking at safety. Or, or not beholden to them. Yeah, they, right. there should be not having anybody crossing over. And so this group over here can be curious when they start seeing all these reports that have come into theirs at the FDA which is our system for tracking um, vaccine safety, right? And of course, you know, we've heard for a long time, there's so many limitations, but this is the best we've got. This is what we've got. There are more um, injuries and deaths that have been reported in, with this vaccine alone than any of the other ones. Right there, that should be a signal. And it also should be a should we put a pause on it mm -hmm. or at least tell the public, hey, we're, you know, we're looking at the data that's coming in and here are some of the things we're seeing. So how is it that you sit on an FDA board? What does that mean even? Um, it is funny. I'm the consumer rep, so I represent the public um, on the FDA Psychopharmologic Drugs Advisory Committee. It is um, the advisory board, just like the ones that were reviewing the vaccine. This one is for all the psychiatric um, drugs. And it is a place where the FDA, if they have questions or if there's something they want to tease out, they, they convene a board of, you know, a lot of them are researchers or academia that are looking at science. And then I'm the consumer rep. And it's a great opportunity. It's been a really big eye-opening um, experience to see drugs coming to market, how they're using fast-tracking mechanisms, which is kind of what the emergency use authorization was, right? But there's been a whole um, slew of new drugs that are coming using accelerated um, approval, which you think is in innovation. 
um, breakthrough. But what it really means is less rigorous clinical trials and less focus on safety. And I take my job really serious on this committee because I look back at the 1991 advisory committee that I now am a member of. Every one of those people took funds from pharma when they said, nope, we don't see any link between antidepressants and um, violence and suicide. I'll ask the, the committee to uh, vote on the following statement. There is credible evidence to support a conclusion that antidepressant drugs cause the emergence and or intensification of suicidality and or other violent behaviors. Those in favor of that statement vote yes. Those opposed to that statement, no. And Dr. Dunner has left a proxy, uh, which makes it a unanimous of 10-0. So if they had done their job, I probably wouldn't be here, right? Mm -hmm. And so I do take um, the safety perspective. I take the real world perspective because I'm seeing so many of the drugs coming in with small clinical trials, right? So I do care about what happens when it gets on the market. Uh, you know, our system is really set up to, to bring products um, on market. We love more in America. You know, we want, we want to sell everything. And so we want more drugs on the market, but we need to be really careful because we're, there's real life consequences to these decisions. So I still laugh that I'm actually on this board with being as vocal as I am about safety, um, but I think it's a really important place to be. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you have all these you know, industry or revolving door people on one of these advisory boards and they just wanna be able to say, hey, we have Kim Witzak on the board, Witzak. Um, you know, so we're all good here, right? Everything's legit and above board because Kim's around. What do you think? Well, sometimes I do wonder if I'm the token safety person. <laughs> but again, if they wanna, if it's being used or not, uh, I know the role that I play. And sometimes it may just be something that's on the record uh, that comes down the road that there was somebody who actually did question these you know medications you know i being on this role um to me it's more than just the trials it's also you know having a background in marketing and advertising uh and how i just see the world like so when i get a new project we have to go do a full 360 investigation and how it you know like what's the good bad the ugly uh, to, you know, take on a new product. And so my mind just naturally thinks that way. So I think it's, I love being on the committee, um, although it's very frustrating at times because I may be the only no vote. Uh, and I often tell people, if you've never observed an FDA advisory board meeting of any kind of drug, you should actually go back and listen. So the first part of the day, it's you know like the sponsors give their presentation of their data. The FDA will do their analysis of the data, and, and the committee gets to question. There's an open public hearing where members of the public can come and give their, their perspective. And then there is the questions at hand that the FDA wants to know, like, do you think the efficacy is there, the safety? 
and then we get to vote. And I always say, go back and listen to the explanation, not the vote. And this is what I'm also trying to get the mainstream media. Don't just report that 17 to 2 approved it. Go back and listen to the explanations because often you will find the person who voted yes, they'll say, I voted yes for this product. I don't think safety is as good as it should be, but I think we need it on the market. And then I'll, they'll come to me. Well, I voted no, I don't think safety is there. And so that explanation is really important and I would highly recommend people just go. It's a very interesting educational process. Um, and it's also where you learn how much pharma actually influences things that, are, that you don't think are obvious, like the patient groups that show up at these FDA meetings um, and where they get their funding. Mm. Okay, so let's, let's explore that, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking about what are ostensibly nonprofits or something in that vein, supposed to be independent groups that are looking at patient outcomes. Yeah, so they might be representing a group of patients, right? They might be, you know, like the Parkinson's Association or the American Heart Society or National Alliance for Mentally Ill. They're all nonprofits representing the disease or, you know, the disease group. And almost you could go to any of these hearings and they have become almost mouthpieces for pharmaceutical industry where they're like, we need this for our patients. There's the work that gets done for the people, but then you go and look at the funding. Two different parts of the business, right? Mm -hmm. Go look at the funding and it's almost all pharmaceutical funding. And I think it's really important with anything that we do, whether it's patients, groups, who are the fact checkers, where's funding coming from, you know? It, um, so that was a big aha, we like to call them AstroTurf, groups um, because they seem, you know, like they're real. Um, and they are, they do good legitimate work, but you have to take that with a grain of salt. So that is one of those other areas that I have learned where pharma's influence is pretty deep. I mean, basically you're talking about a situation where, you know, they're strongly motivated, arguably, to give the outcome that the Pharma, pharma would like because pharma provides some large portion of their funds. That's the idea. Yep. That's what you'd call a conflict of interest, right? It, it seems like a conflict of interest to me. So even like, so they'll sometimes have people who are in the clinical trials that would show up, but the funding, their all their travel, everything's paid for, and of course they're going to say that this drug, you know, could have saved my loved one's life had it if it was available now. Um, you could see how things can get easily manipulated. Mm. And I don't know if you had a chance to listen to any of the FDA or CDC um, uh, advisory committee meetings that they've had during the last two years to do with the vaccines. It's very interesting to listen. Um, you know, I wish that they were in person and I wish that the cameras were on but the cameras were not on, so you can't actually see the emotional. But there were people that were like researchers that came, but they were under the guise of mom. Or I work for the company, but I have no conflict. I'm coming here as a mom. It was very interesting when you start looking at like the number of people who were actually talking 
during the open public hearing. Where it, and it seemed like there was some selection, particular selection that was happening. And we'll never know because everything was Zoom, digital. And unlike, you know, back in the day of previous, uh, many of the advisory committees, you had to actually show up. When you do everything remotely and you don't, there's something that you're missing. You're not getting the, the emotion of the people that are actually the injured that would have showed up to tell their story. But instead, during these last two years with the advisory committees, the cameras have been off. So you're saying basically you think that there's people who would have shown up to a hearing, maybe uninvited or something like that, whereas on these Zoom meetings, just simply never get a say because they get edited out by someone who does yeah. that. Um, it's somebody at the F I mean, it's somebody at the FDA that selects. They maybe will only let twenty-five people, right? Mm -hmm. But if you, so I go back and I think about those hearings um, to do with antidepressants. I mean, even if you were not selected to speak, but they had a hundred and some people that would speak. Families were lined up, and it was the entire auditorium at the FDA was packed. So, okay, what I'm hearing from you is that there's some, some sense of accountability, maybe, of yeah. the people that are there, like, okay, there's a lot of people that are interested, this is serious. Yeah. Whereas in the virtual world. Yeah, I think, you know what, that's a good way of um, saying accountability um, and transparency, too. Then the media couldn't ignore it. Imagine if all of these people came on um, at the, to the FDA, right? to, because they were gonna discuss whatever vaccine, and they are like, whoa, 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 before you do that, look at us. Here, I'm in a healthy person, now I'm in a wheelchair. Like, it would have been a, an entirely different outcome. I believe it with all my heart. Like, I, when I think back to um, antidepressants, there were so many, there were security guards with armed guards, with guns. All the main street um, media was full with cameras. And it was all because people, and either, whether they got to tell their story or not, it was every row, every seat was full. And it was also um, overflow. And so they had to have overflow rooms. And I think that same thing would happen with the vax injured if we would have had in-person meetings. And I think we should be demanding in-person meetings as well. What is the level, based on your experience, of pharmaceutical industry capture of these institutions? Well, again, I go back to follow the money. Um, most people, I learned a, a concept that I had no idea. It's called, um, it's the user fee program that where basically it was back in, I think, 97 that was established by Congress that with every application, the drug company pays a fee. So now I think it's over 50%, 50 or more of the FDA budget actually comes from the pharmaceutical industry. This one's Prescription Drug User Fee Act, PDUFA, and there's MEDUFA, you know, we like all of our acronyms, and that's a must-pass legislation every five years. In fact, it's just being authorized again, and mostly um, pharma decides what they want in, you know, because we're going to be paying you FDA, here are our demands. 
and the consumer perspective doesn't really get a say in that. So that's one way. The consumer interest doesn't have a say? How is that possible? Isn't that the, 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 the main interest? So the initial negotiations happens behind closed doors. And it should never happen behind closed doors. Like my feeling is we, the, the people that represent the, um, the public interest, should be a part of these meetings. You know, and again, everything is always about um, privacy and, you know, it's always about the business and the privacy. Like, I've heard that privacy thing forever. But, you know, at least there needs to be an opportunity where we can, can have a seat at the table. And not the kids' table at the Thanksgiving dinner. You know, I want to be at the dinner table with the adults. But, you know, the times that we've maybe got to say what we want, we're at the kids' table. And so it really then goes back to Congress. But this Congress, um, there hasn't been a whole lot of interest in putting the safety measures in, like there has been in, in past um, PDUFA negotiations. So that's one where there's the captured kind of, you know, the, the ties between um, pharma and the FDA and industry. But then there are all the others like, the rotating doors, mm -hmm. where they go from the FDA to the company, the company back to the FDA. Like I just read, um, you know, Google's um, has a new um, business, and Califf, um, our current FDA commissioner, came from there. Now is inside the FDA, and a couple of his people are now over at the company. On the one hand, sure, you get in, you understand how the system works, but. That's not, I, I feel like there should be some rules against that as well. Um, you know, because there's been some damage that has been done because of that rotating door for consumers when getting into litigation. Um, so there's, you know, so that's something that I think that we need to um, take a look at as well. What, what would be an example of that damage, just to be clear? So one of them is a preemption brief, which is basically, you know, the, the government, the FDA was intervening in a bunch of private lawsuits against some of the companies. Um, but the person who actually created it came from um, outside, got money from one of the drug companies when they became into the FDA. Um, and then they started intervening on behalf of the FDA um, in private lawsuits, and, uh, and it was to do with a lot with the antidepressants and suicides. On the side of the company? Yeah. Right. The FDA was intervening on behalf of the company, let's, let's say, when there was the Pfizer um, litigation, and they actually said, the brief was basically, if, even if they wanted to warn, we wouldn't let them because we didn't see a warn, you know, we're the ones that watch the warnings and we didn't see a sign. So that was basically the essence of the brief and a lot of judges around the country threw them out. And that's intentionally what it was meant to do. It was the harm that it did and the, pay, you know, the, the consumer lost out again because these suits were often thrown out. I can give you another example of the rotating door problem. Uh, prior to his appointment, Dan Troy, who became the FDA chief counsel, which did not need to have congressional um, approval. It was presidential, um, you know, uh, appointment. Um, this guy took $300,000 from Pfizer and went into the FDA and started to intervene 
um, in these private lawsuits, uh, suicide lawsuits against Pfizer and the other drug companies with the creation of this preemption brief. And we were able to help expose this with one of the members of Congress, Representative um, Maurice Hinchy. And eventually he left, uh, Dan Troy left his position at the FDA as chief counsel and went back into industry, um, a law firm, private law firm, and then ultimately ended up as global chief counsel at GlaxoSmithKline, which is you know, another huge drug company. So right there, we lose out. The public loses out. All of this has been documented because it was in New York Times. It was a big, it was covered quite extensively back then. But see, that's the difference. You know, I look back at things that happened in the past, and it had a lot of, you know, interest by the media, and it was covered by the media. And all of a sudden with this, the vaccines, it was like, this behavior doesn't exist anymore because this is all for the greater good. Like, it's this really bizarre thing that's happened um, with uh, the media, the ones that actually used to do really great reporting. How much has changed just in the hypocrisy and like the, the messaging that has come from top down? And no one seems to be re wanting to go back and go, well, do you remember when you said this, Fauci? Remember when you said this? Do you remember when you said this? And it's like they've completely given him and the whole changing narrative a free pass. Mm. Maybe the good thing that's going to come out of this is it's going to shake up everything, shake up the traditional healthcare system, the FDA, government, the media system, and maybe we needed this to show the, the craziness of what has happened in the last couple of years. Is, is there any good resource out there to basically understand how all these different relationships between pharma and government and patient advocates and, and so forth work? Well, it's funny you should ask. I'm actually working on something right now. I call it the spider web. Uh, it, the spider web of pharma's influence on the whole medical ecosystem. And it really started uh, building it one by one as I'm learning about it um, through you know, my years of doing this work. And I go back to you know, where do our doctors get educated, right? Um, the medical schools, who owns medical education? Um, so when you start seeing pharma's influence on medical education, when I've asked doctors, have you ever learned anything about how the FDA works? And they're like, no. If you educate the doctors and you're putting your monies into the programs and a lot of the academic institutions that do the research, who the researchers also need the pharma money, right? Well, then that also influences, you know, how, what gets taught, how it gets taught, how it gets positioned, right? Then, so there's the education part. Then there's medical journals. So one of the things that came out of my lawsuit was this whole docu um, document that was the publication plan for um, social anxiety disorder. And it was basically listing all the places it was going to run, when it was going to run, who the authors were. And then there were a few that said, Dr. TBD, Dr. TBD, Dr. TBD. And I was like, 
what's who's Dr. TBD? He's pretty famous, you know, but it's because they haven't put a doctor in there. So the, they, they already had the material, the material ready to it go. It was already committed to run yeah. on this date. Here's what it was going to be about. But they didn't have the doctor who was going to be um, writing the Ostensibly, journal. Ostensibly, right, yeah. yeah. That's when I started learning about the concept of ghostwriting and like medical journals um, and really understanding key opinion leaders. It's a term that's used um, that have written papers. It is the doctors who actually are out being spokespersons about their research, but they're actually getting funding. People who from... shift opinions of others. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. So people, um, so that key opinion leader, which was a new concept for me, right? Being, uh, then you look at um, the PR department, like PR, how it's working. They hire to write, to do shifting of public um, perception about a problem, right? So they might be putting op-eds, even though it wasn't really from the company, it might have been um, from an average person, but it's intentionally well-coordinated. Then you learn about fact-checkers and who's, again, um, funding fact-checkers, who's behind the fact-checkers. Then you look at who's running clinical trials, where are the clinical trial sites, and who's influencing it. That's a whole nother area. And you start seeing it is everywhere. It and is. And when you say it, you mean big pharma's, pharma yeah, big right. pharma's money. Mm -hmm. um, then you have Congress, and then you have the FDA, and you have um, uh, advertising. You know, again, that's a little bit more obvious, mm -hmm. right? We're one of the only two countries in the world that allows direct to consumer advertising. Mm -hmm. But also, there's all the marketing that goes to the doctors and um, you know, through journals. And so it's not just to consumers, it's the back end. So their handprints, fingerprints are everywhere. And it's not to say that you don't trust them. You know, you just have to take everything with a grain of salt. It's just about being aware. You know the kind of questions that you might want to ask. And so... So we've had you on as an expert on trying to get access to some of the FDA data. For example, you know, we have a headline, FDA is withholding autopsy results on people who died after getting COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, it's refusing to provide uh, key COVID-19 vaccine safety analyses. That's another headline, something that we're, we're, we got your, your feedback on this. Um, we have, you know, a little bit earlier, we have White House health officials making very clearly false claims about COVID-19 vaccines, you know. Um, again, related to safety. Um, at the moment, this just seems to keep happening again and again, this withholding of information, especially something, anything that would be related to safety and I'd create questions about that. I will keep saying the same thing. I sound like a broken record, but when there's safety signals, it belongs to the public. And if somebody sends in, takes the time, whether it's the individual, their family member, or the healthcare provider, takes their time to send in, um, you know, reports into the VAERS system or the, the MedWatch, which is prescription drugs, they want to be investigated. They want to be contact. They want it to be, um, you know, looked at and serve as a signal. But the idea that we're intentionally keeping it 
and hiding it, I don't, I just don't get it. When people's lives need this information and it could be the difference between um, life and death, right? For somebody. Um, like the autopsy, and we always hear, well, private, privacy, privacy data, you know, like, no, all you have to do, literally, I'm, you redact everything else. So you redact their name, any personal information, but the information about what happened to them is not identifiable. It doesn't say, you know, Kim Witt's at my age, where I came from. It's none of that, you know, that's all redacted. But take my experience and go investigate it. But I will never understand when you are a public health agency, why you would ever withhold data around safety from the public. Are we gonna trust them? Are we gonna trust our um, public health officials? Are we gonna trust our regulatory agencies? Will people trust? Who's in charge? Well, and you know, with this new bill in California, which Governor Newsom just signed, Right, right now there's uh, essentially doctors, individual doctors are being told what they can or cannot talk about in a blanket way, as far as I can tell. Do you have any thoughts on that, Bill? Well, first of all, who's playing um, the decision maker on this is misinformation, this is disinformation, this is, you know, it goes back to who holds the science, the cards of science. And so I thought practice of medicines between me and my doctor. My doctor has a feeling that we've discussed, but now he, can, he or she could be um, actually lose their license. And who's deciding it? The medical boards that are a p political position anyways? You know, I've been doing a lot of you know, work um, with other safety advocates. Um, that have done work around medical boards and when people, you know, like patients who have reported their doctors and the medical boards, you know, look the other way. And so the idea that now we're going to like give all this power to the medical boards as well, I mean, that's political position. Who wants to practice in that kind of environment? If you really go in wanting to do this work and you have a different opinion than what is coming out of Washington because it's between me and my patient, like, who wants to practice in that environment? I kind of, in my head, called it the Prevent Doctors from Doctoring Act. I'm not a medical professional, but there's a Hippocratic Oath that you vow, you know, you make a vow. And, and if, you're, if there's some body that's telling you, blanket, how to deal with a patient that obviously they can have no idea about the reality of that particular patient, it seems like that Violet would violate that oath. I mean, I, I'll have to talk to maybe Aaron Cariotti, the medical ethicist, about this in more detail, but it, it strikes me as unbelievably problematic. Yeah, I think first do no harm, right? It also impacts the informed consent if they have to say that they're completely safe. You know, that is problematic. It sure seems um, that it would be a very difficult environment to practice in. And I could see people, really good doctors that are, don't want to practice in that and leave and go somewhere else. Well, Kim, I, I love seeing uh, you referenced as an expert in our, in our articles and some of our investigative work. Uh, 
And uh, any final thoughts as we finish up? Well, first of all, I will continue to do this work. It's very thankless work um, sometimes, but it, it, it means a lot that you are having somebody like me. So I do this work because I don't want any other family to have to learn the hard way. Stop, pause, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Do research, listen to programs like this, educate yourself because it could be the difference between life and death. Well, Kim Witzak, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining Kim Witzak and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm-hmm.